Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Power of Audio, Science and AI, supported by Stockholm Music City. I am Jasmine Moradi, your host, and in each episode, I'll take you backstage to meet with some of the top audio, science and AI personalities in the world. I will interview entrepreneurs, authors, business experts and thought leaders to learn how and why they're so passionate and determined about what they do. I will give you the knowledge and the insight your business needs to succeed with your audio branding. My guest today is my friend Kevin Perlmutter. We met for the first time in May 2017 when I was in New York City conducting my in-store music research. I visited him at the man-made music office where he was working as a chief strategist and chief innovation officer. Today he has jumped into the world of entrepreneurship and he is the chief strategist and the founder of Limbic Brand Evolution. Before that, he has passionately and successfully for over 20 plus years been helping large, small and nonprofit brands evolve. He started his career in the advertising industry where he stayed for 16 years. After that, he moved on to work with Interbrand as a senior director of strategy, where he led strategy brand revolution and identity evolution. He launched a successful customer experience practice long before it became a hype. Today, Kevin and I are going to discuss the in and out of the power of emotional branding, how to find your company's limbic sparks. We both have the passion for discovering what triggers the brain. With that, Kevin, I welcome you and thank you very much for joining us. It's always lovely to connect with you and share our experiences. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate. How are you doing in times like this? Oh, it's such a amazing question. Um, times like this are challenging. It's it's uh, it, there's a lot going on in the world, and and uh, everybody's emotionally. We're, we're talking a lot about emotion today. Emotions are 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 running high. Uh, people have highs and lows in these times, and um, I think everybody's looking for you know, regardless of what you believe and what you hope for. I think everybody's looking for a little bit more predictability and a little bit more um, calmness in, in what's going on in the world. Yes, and talking about the emotions, um, from the first time we met, I still remember when you played I, I, the IMAX anthem for me in the music studio. And it was a powerful, memorable moment for me, goosebumps, to listen where it was originally created. Um, do you remember the moment too? I do. Um... That you know, visiting visiting with you, we had spoken many times um, over Skype, over the phone, um, but that was the first time we met in person. I remember the day. I remember your mom was with you too because she was visiting New York on your trip, so she hung out as well. Um, it was a fun day, and um, one of the things we often did uh, when I was working there was we played that IMAX anthem for people. We we brought people into the studio. They heard it in five point one surround sound on the most amazing speakers ever. Um, and the the impact, the emotional impact that it had on you, and what it caused you to feel about the company that I was working for at that time, um, was a little bit predictable. And we knew it would have a good impact. And we shared that experience with a lot of people who came to visit the studio for that reason. Amazing. And we've got to know each other very well on the business level. So I would like to start by asking you, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, um, just a little bit south of New York City. I was actually born in Brooklyn, New York. I like to say that, although I don't remember living there. I was only there about a year. But saying I was born in Brooklyn is always a fun thing for me. But I am from New Jersey. Um, I grew up near the Jersey Shore, um, not far from where uh, John Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen grew up. Didn't really know them at all. But, you know, in the area. 
And uh, I went to school. Uh, my first experience sort of away from that area was, was in school. I went to Indiana University, which was an amazing experience. I was there for several years and then came back. And my career has always been um, in the New York City area. Very interesting. And one thing that you actually mentioned on your website, lim limbicbrandevolution.com, is that you've been a long distance runner since high school. I and, have been. And it's, uh, it's all about competition, isn't it? It is. I mean, one of the things that I absolutely loved about running is that it's both a team sport and an individual sport. I get to be part of a team um, when, I, when I was running in high school and a little bit in college. And as a team member, I was responsible for doing the best I could. And at the end of the meet, the points added up and, and whichever team had the, uh, the most runners coming in closest to the finish first, uh, closest to the finish first, these, these, this was the team that won. But at the end of the day, it was an individual sport running for me. I've been running since high school and it's very individual and it's, um, it's me putting pressure on myself to do better, which is a, a large part of what I'm about. Yeah, it's about pressure, but it's also about that motivation. Uh, I'm not a runner, I've never been, and I always said that even if I try, I really don't have that inner motivation that some people have. So I'm interested to understand what was it in your inner motivational drive as a boy that brought you to where you are today, working with science of emotion and, and brand strategies? Well, I've always been incredibly curious. I've always been the person who took things apart, um, tried to figure out how they worked, um, what makes things um, happen. And for me, I'm also always about evolution. Um, evolution of my career, uh, finding things that are more challenging, um, looking to take what I'm doing to the next level and seeing where it goes and, and sort of being on the edge of a frontier. I've always thought about my career um, in various phases. Um, as you mentioned, the first uh, several years were in advertising, and that was phase one for me. I worked at three different agencies, but that was phase one. Uh, phase two was moving to Interbrand, where I wanted to move from more of an account management role into a brand strategist role. And at Interbrand for seven years, um, I was able to um, hone my craft, become uh, a legitimate senior level brand strategist, uh, guide clients, uh, very large clients, through massive brand strategy and brand identity evolution, help my company grow by creating new offerings that were relevant, like the customer experience practice. And then phase three was my move to man-made music, which we'll talk about some more in a bit. Um, and phase four now is, is being on my own, leading Limbic Brand Evolution. So for me, it's always about being on the edge of a frontier, finding ways where my skills can be useful and valuable, yet I'm always challenged to learn something new and taking it to the next level. Yeah, and, 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 and reading and listening to your story, I can hear that the, the red thread is, is branding, emotional strategy, and some kind of research because of the curiosity. Um, and we all know that as young children, we create consciousness and some conscious emotional connections when we first come in contact with the brand. It can be positive, it can be negative, or even neutral. And for me growing up, I had a sister that is actually a brand manager today and at a young age she was super obsessed with the coca-cola brand mm -hmm. uh, she was collecting the original glass bottles and you know she even mentioned our dog that is 11 years today coca-cola but of course we have a nickname for him for coca so again i wanted to be able to understand what is your earliest like memories like emotional connection you had as a child with a brand or a product that is still with you and has some kind of sufficient meaning or strong emotional effect on you when you come in contact with it today? It's a great question. There are two brands that immediately popped into my mind when you asked that question. The first is um, a brand called You Bet Chocolate Syrup, U-B-E-T Chocolate Syrup. Um, I haven't had You Bet chocolate syrup in a long, long time, partially because I don't eat chocolate. I'm allergic to it. But as a child, I didn't know I was allergic to it, and I had it all the time. 
my grandfather used to come from Brooklyn. My, my grandparents used to come from Brooklyn. Um, and my grandfather would always find things that we loved, me and my sister. And the one thing that they would always bring from Brooklyn to our house in New Jersey was You Bet Chocolate Syrup. So that brand, which most people never heard of, was born in Brooklyn 100 years ago. And my grandfather always had it for us. And it just reminds me of growing up with my grandparents. And the second brand that I think about, um, it's a little bit of a cliche, but um, but Nike is a brand that had a very large impact on me. Nike became um, an, an amazing, innovative brand in the 80s as a result of running, the craze of running. They invented the waffle, the waffle sole for, for racing. Um, I started running in the 80s uh, in high school, and that to me was... Um, you know, Nike was the brand that the Olympians were, were wearing. It was the brand of sneakers that was the most innovative for runners. Um, and I always wore Nike, uh, for many years. Um, and it, it sort of, it sort of happened at the time that I started running, which has been a big part of my life. And, and do you wear Nike today? It's a fantastic question. Um, unfortunately, that, and I've thought about this a lot as a brand strategist who focuses on emotion and loyalty, I've thought about this a lot. And the answer is no, but I still have great passion for the Nike brand. Now, let me tell you why. This is a very interesting, got into a psychology piece here about brand and emotion and loyalty. And in order for brands to remain a part of someone's life, in terms of purchases, it has to serve their needs. And at one point, about 10 or 12 years ago, Nike changed their whole line of running shoes. I grew up getting certain running shoes. And when you're a runner, you don't change shoes that often. The shoes evolve year over year. It's the, it's the Nike Air Pegasus 1, the Nike Air Pegasus 2, the Nike Air Pegasus 12. You know, every year they tweak it a little bit, but it's the same shoe, just a little bit better. And as a runner, you don't want to mess with what's on your feet because it'll change how you run. At one point, Nike changed their whole line. They dropped all their old running shoes and they introduced this new type of shoe. I tried it on. I, it didn't work for me. I changed to another brand and I've stuck with that brand and I... I got that brand when it was the model, I, I still wear the same shoe, but it was model three and now it's model 16 or whatever it is. I still get the same shoe because I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in a pattern of a shoe that really works for me. But, but somehow Nike is still the brand that I associate with my days running. And I still believe in that brand. I believe it's innovative. I believe it's, um, it's a high quality brand. They just, they just didn't have a shoe for me. So I stopped using it. Very interesting. And then, as you say, it still has that emotional impact in you. And, and analyzing Nike's strategy back then with the knowledge you have now, what would you say that they did right already back then? Well, what they did right was they, um, they associated their brand with your ability to achieve what you want, to work hard, to, um, that, that everyday people could achieve greatness in their life um, with their products. They projected performance, um, optimism, working hard, and, I, and that was always important to me. Very interesting. Now we're going to go back to what I mentioned in my intro that we met when we were working at Manman Music. Um, tell us a little bit about the company and especially your role when you were there. Well, Manmade Music is a um, is a sonic branding studio. They create music and sound for entertainment brands and for traditional brands. So um, I, I met them while I was working at Interbrand. Um, we had a shared client relationship um, and I got to know the leadership team there pretty well. And after seven years at Interbrand and I was thinking about that next phase of my career and what it was that I wanted to do next, my conversations um, at Manmade got a little bit deeper and we found an opportunity for me to join them as chief strategist. And ultimately um, that transitioned into chief innovation officer throughout the time that I was there. And the company, when I joined them at the, 
at the time I joined them, they were relatively new to working with large global brands um, that were traditional brands. They had a dozen years of experience working with tremendous global entertainment brands, but not as much experience working with corporations. So I was able to bring some experience their way to help them navigate those types of relationships. And my job while I was there uh, was was technically um, called uh, Kevin is here to help us do things we've never done before. <laughs> and um, my, my job was to help evolve the, the business, uh, evolve the way they approach strategy, evolve uh, their innovation practices, expand offerings. Um, that was the essence of the job when I joined. Very interesting. And and coming in with the, your expertise of the brand strategy world and then mixing it up with the sound branding, what would you say out of that role, what kind of like top learnings uh, did you add on? And, and please reference also to some of your work that you did. Well, there are things that I brought in, but actually I want to focus on more on what I learned there. Um, I learned a lot about the power of emotion. Um, I learned and became uh, more disciplined in the idea that you can create strategy through the lens of how you want people to feel. So when creating music and sound for brands, it's all about expressing what the brand is all about or what you want to communicate at a particular moment in an experience only through sound without words. So whether it's an anthem like the IMAX anthem that you referenced that gives you a grand impression of that brand um, and the story bits that were built into that anthem that allow that story to effectively communicate what that brand is all about are important, but it also goes down to the, to the moment in the experience when you, um, you're using an app or you're using a product and a small sound, like an instantaneous sound comes through and it's meant to communicate something about that experience. So I learned a lot about um, emotion and behavioral science and, and how using the question, how do you want people to feel um, as a guide for how a brand comes to life in every moment? Wow. Yeah, super interesting. A lot of stuff that, that I know about and I'm very passionate about. And, and, and also you got the uh, opportunity that I'm super jealous of <laughs> to collaborate with uh, your friends at Sentence Decision Science. And you guys won an award for the neuroscience-based research capability. And I'm super curious now to hear all about Sonic Pulse and the outcomes of your research. Well, that was, um, that was one of those things um, that I did at Manmade that I'm very proud of, um, where I was challenged um, to create a research capability. Um, we've never had a research capability. We'd like a research capability. Kevin, can you create a research capability? So <laughs> that was the basic flow of many of the things that I did there. This is about the research capability. So the way we approached that, the way I approached that was we wanted to assess the impact and effectiveness of music and sound. We wanted to understand what it was communicating, um, how it was making people feel emotionally, emotionally, what it was saying about the brand or the moment in the experience, and if it was doing its job, which was to make people feel a certain way and communicate something about that experience that the brand wanted people to know. And there was really no way to know that clearly um, but we recognize that if we if we did know that, we could use that information to actually improve the product, the, the sound that we were creating. So I um, I created that capability, um, and and originally with another research partner, um, and it was using uh, traditional survey based research, and meaning surveys, conscious based response to questions and and things like that, and. I realized about six or nine months into the first phase of that offering that sound affects people at a subconscious level, yet we're asking them to evaluate it at a conscious level. So fortunately, I came to that conclusion and I, I looked around at different partners and I ran into, um, I, I was introduced to uh, my friend Joe at Sentient um, and 
we started talking and we, we hit it off immediately. And he shared with me their methodology of understanding implicit association and understanding um, how people are reacting to stimulus at a subconscious level, how it makes them feel, what it, um, what it communicates, um, what, what attributes you take away. Um, and we decided to focus our energies on that relationship with sentient and co-create this research capability using their methodologies and our, our stimulus, um, our, our, our desire to prove certain things. And we custom created a methodology specifically for evaluating sound and music and, um, and made it the exclusive capability of, of man-made music's uh, research approach. And uh, what I learned from that was a lot around um, how sound really affects people. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And, and me being in the sound um, field myself, one of the challenges that I found is to find a proper low cost research tool where I in real time can measure the emotional impact. And as you mentioned, there are a couple of them. There are EEG, there's fMRI, and, and, and those cost a lot of money. And, and, and then, of course, now you can do implicit explicit tests. Uh, but based on your background and expertise, how do you think we can solve this technology going forward, make it more affordable, much more easier and real time to, to help brands really measuring that impact? I, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I, I think that if we go back a few years, um, the need to bring people into labs and do fMRI and those types of evaluations, which are traditionally small numbers of people that have to go somewhere, um, which is basically an expensive research proposition because you're getting quantitative data on the individual, but you're getting qualitative data in terms of the number of respondents, and it's very expensive per respondent. I think those days are, I think those days are, are going away a little bit because there are so many research companies out there like Sentient that have uh, developed quantitative ways to remotely assess people's responses to things. I'm, I'm not saying that the old ways of collecting that data are, are gone. They're incredibly important for scientists and for certain types of research. But I think that there are now affordable ways um, to gather similar amounts of similar types of data in a quantitative setting that is also, um, and this is the important point, you have to be careful that you're working with a research partner that has um, that has validated with high levels of significance that the data is accurate. That um, I, I what do they call them? You'd know this better than me. Um, academically uh, peer-reviewed studies. I mean, whatever it is, these things need to be validated. And there are a lot of research players out there right now claiming behavioral science approaches that don't have the accreditation, I think that's the word I was looking for, the academic accreditation that their, that their studies are actually um, pro providing valuable results. So it's hard, you have to be careful in selecting a partner, but there are, are a lot of partners out there that, that have great, great um, approaches to doing that very affordably. Yeah, I face that challenge too, where you go and speak to the brands and they say, oh, no, 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 I've done that before. And we always got negative results. And, and then I ask, okay, so what was the mythology? What kind of music did you choose? And, and it's always going to be based like, yeah, it was a CD. And it's, you know, it doesn't have that Latin square. It doesn't have that real scientific thought about it. And, and also they don't do it. Uh, uh, they, they, they instantly just ask survey questions on music, which means like, oh, yeah, but then the, the, the person is aware of what you're asking for. You don't get the real answer. Uh, now I'm interested to know your answers. And therefore, I'm going to ask you to tell us three sounds that evoke positive emotions and memories in your life. Mm -hmm. And then three sounds that evokes the negative. And then I wow. want to know why. Okay, so I'm going to start with the negative. Um, <laughs> the three sounds that that um, that drive me crazy. One is is rattling, like I don't know, like little a little noise, and like when I'm in a car, 
and the sunglasses are in the sunglasses compartment and it's just shaking a little bit or the back seat is vibrating the two back seats and they're vibrating against each other or something like that or there's a leaf on the wind like these it just drives me crazy like these little sounds i got like pull over the car and stop it from happening it's just somehow i've become very in tune and this is a casualty of working at the music studio i've become very in tune with very small annoying sounds um that that's one two other sounds that i found really annoying um, and, and thanks to um, the work I did there with Sentient on Sonic Pulse Research, I was actually able to prove quantitatively, quantitatively that they're annoying to more people than just me. Um, one is the, the, the home security system alert sounds. So you know when you come into your own home and the alarm is set and there's a, there's a sound, a high frequency uh, piercing sound telling you to turn the alarm off. So this is not the sound that you hear when you're breaking into someone's house and it goes off at 80, 90 decibels on, outside the house to the street. This is the sound that happens right next to your ear after you come in your house because it's right next to the door on the inside. And the other one is, is a microwave sound. Like when you, you imagine this, you, you're, you're making dinner, right? And you're all excited because you've got this really great frozen treat that you stuck in the microwave. And you put this frozen treat in the microwave and two and a half, three, four minutes later, you're like, I'm ready to eat. And the microwave starts screaming at you to open the door because your food is done. It's got this piercing, like repeating, 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 just this sound that just keeps happening and happening until you open the, you want to rip the door off, throw the microwave in the middle of the street. You're no longer hungry because it took you an extra 10 seconds of listening to that noise to get to the microwave and stop it from happening. These two sounds, the home security alert and the microwave sound were driving me nuts. So when Sentient and Manmade, um, when we did this study um, that was actually written up and published in Wired Magazine after it was done, we did this study to assess sounds on a, on a, on a spectrum of emotional appeal. And we correlated sounds that were in the real world like these, well, not in the real world, manufactured sounds, design sounds like these with sounds that were just part of our world. And we looked at everything from baby laughter, which was incredibly high positive emotion, to um, nails <laughs> on a chalkboard, which was incredibly low positive emotion. So on a, on a 100 index, the, the low sounds were in the low 90s, which is very low on this scale. Um, the microwave and the home security alerts were, were somewhere between nails on a chalkboard and a pain scream in terms of how they sounded to people. So I knew quantitatively that I wasn't alone in this disgust for how these appliances were making me feel when I used them. I've since, uh, the, the microwave hasn't died yet, uh, but the, I've since replaced the home security system. <laughs> well, well, the microwave also, you'd be happy that you're working from home, right? Because that makes me memories of when you're working in an office and people mm -hmm. put it in the microwave and they go back to their seat and then it's like, keep beeping. And you're um, like, it's okay, so rude. Somebody come and, and, and just take it out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so, it's so, it's so off. Now I can only blame myself. <laughs> and, and your, uh, and your positive ones? Oh yeah, I have positive sounds too. There, are, I do like some things. Um, so, you were so passionate about <laughs> Well, the best part about the negative sounds was not only do they annoy me, but I proved they annoy. I proved they annoy a lot of people. <laughs> so I felt uh, validated yeah. in my in my concern. Um, the sounds that I really love are are the sounds that sort of evoke uh, memories and really really evoke things. So again, I'm going to come back to running. Um, one of my favorite places in the world to run is a park called Homedell Park in central New Jersey. It's where I grew up running. It was not far from my high school. It's where the New Jersey state championship meets are and a lot of championship meets that lead up to that. Um, and it's one of the most challenging um, 5K trail runs 
in the state, which is why they use it for all of these championship meets. That is one of my favorite places to run in the world. It's a very difficult course. I go there when I need to like recharge. I was just there last Saturday and I specifically went there last Saturday because of the the multi-sensory experience of running through that trail in the fall. So it's partially the sound, but it's also the smell of the fall leaves um, on the ground. It's very quiet. You kind of just hear your feet hitting the hitting the leaves, hit, hearing the crackling. Um, that's that's one. I, I love that trail, and I could probably run it in my sleep. I know where every every root sticks up. I know I know that trail. I could probably not in my sleep. I could probably run it with a blindfold on. Um, <laughs> it, I, I know that trail so well. Um, Another one uh, is uh, power tools. I, I build things. I build furniture. Um, there's nothing like like the sound of a table saw, or or a pneumatic nail gun putting a roof on a house. Um, I, these these are sounds that I really enjoy. Um, also, it's multisensory. I love the smell of of sawdust and and wood coming burnt wood coming off of these tools. Um, I love the smell of um of of like finishes like like stains and polyurethane and things like that. Those are, those are things that excite me. They, they get me excited about building my next project. Um, and the, the third sound that I really love, and, and this again goes, probably dates back to uh, the movie Risky Business, which was a 1980s Tom Cruise movie. Um, it's the sound of a Porsche. Ooh. And um, in that movie, uh, Tom Cruise was a senior in high school and his parents were away and his dad had a 944 and he used to take it out for drives. And there were a couple scenes where, where he just is at a light and he kind of looks over at the other driver and he kind of looks back at his friend and light turns green. He waits a beat, he hits the gas and <laughs> that, that classic throat guzzling Porsche sound is something that, um, that really excites me. Oh wow! Can can I ask you then? Do you have a Porsche today? <laughs> the honest truth is, um, yes. Um, about 14 <laughs> years ago, I I purchased a um, a 1986 911. Um, I, it wasn't that expensive, to be honest with you, because when I bought it, it was already over about 20 years old, and um, I had a choice. I needed a new car, and I could either buy like a new Honda Accord or something, or for the same price. I could buy my dream car that was already 20 years old, and um, now it's about 35 years old, and it's still in great condition, and it's worth more than I paid for it. So, wow, yes, you see how, the, the how, dream came. The dream sound. came true. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the, also it might be because of the sound, and a lot of cars are working with sound. Well, if if I could go <laughs> further with this story a little bit, we haven't talked at all about so many things, but when I test drove that car, I brought my mechanic to the garage that was selling it. It was a dealership. And we went late at night and the dealership was closed. And I was standing in the garage in the back of, it was in the back of the dealership. There was an open garage door and a bay. And the dealer and my mechanic went for a drive. And this was my mechanic going to tell me, is this good to buy or is this car like a problem? And I'm standing in this garage. It's pitch black outside. It's total darkness, total quiet. All I hear are like crickets. And 10 minutes later, I hear and they stop, stop the car in the garage right in front of me. My mechanic gets out of the car and gives me the thumbs up and I'm like, yes. <laughs> so anyway, that's the story of me getting that car. Wow. So impressive to hear, you know, you're so passionate and the emotions and the memories you seem to have a lot of you know have had a lot of fun working with sound and and now you've moved away a little bit from sound branding and you brought in yourself into more emotional branding but before we leave on this subject based on your expertise and learnings what would you say that brand leaders must know about the power of audio branding and what they have to implement in the strategies to stay competitive well I'm going to go in a couple of different directions with that answer. I mean, as it relates to audio branding, I think it's becoming more and more popular. Brands are, are starting to realize that the sound that their brand makes is important. Um, and it definitely affects people at an emotional letter, uh, level. 
whether you um, are planning what that sound is or it's just happening. Um, the sound of your brand has a lot of potential impact on people. What I took away from that experience um, beyond sound was the power of emotion. Um, and the power of emotion is something that's often ignored or under leveraged by most brand leaders. They don't recognize that emotion, no matter how it comes to you, through sound, through smell, through customer service, through experiences that you have with the brand, through the way a brand communicates with you, for how, how responsive a brand is to your needs and desires, these are all things that I recognized were so um, ignored by most brand leaders and CMOs for whatever reason, but the data is there that it's incredibly important. So for me, I saw that as an opportunity to take my career to phase four and to start my own company focused exclusively on activating brands through strategy that is rooted in emotion. Yeah, and, 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 a, and a sound is just one element of the emotional brand strategy. And today, um, you are the chief strategist and the founder of Limbic Brand Evolution. And I have to confess, <laughs> I had to Google the word Limbic. <laughs> so please tell me and the audience, what does the word mean? How is connected to your past and with what you're doing today? Well, I will be honest and share a confession that as I was coming up with the name, a name for my company, um, I too had to do a little bit, a little, little bit of research on, on Limbic. Um, but I, I very soon recognized it was the perfect name for my company. I come from Interbrand where we named products and services. I was not a namer, but I was part of that process and naming something is an, is an incredibly important thing. So coming up with the right name for my company was my first primary objective after deciding to launch this business. And uh, limbic uh, relates to the limbic system in our brain. The limbic system in our brain controls emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. It's the subconscious territory that actually triggers our body's conscious reactions to things. So there was no more perfect name for my business than Limbic, because Limbic is all about the power of emotion and, and the emotional instincts that cause people to act and behave in certain ways. And I paired that with brand evolution because my personal brand and the way I help my clients is through evolution. It's, there's always there's always something that you can be doing no matter where you are to evolve and improve brand performance, customer connections and growth. So I, I look at things as being very evolutionary and I believe there's always an opportunity to bring new thoughts, new insights and ideas into how a brand um, keeps moving forward successfully. Very, very interesting. Yeah, now when you put it out like that, it, it does make sense. And I think that there's a lot of things in the medicine world, the worldwide that we don't know, but working in branding and, and, and some other kind of like the kind of research that, that I do, we, we recognize it. But you also tell us that, that sound is one element. But for me then to understand what other elements have you added today to work with, uh, with the emotional strategy? Well, the honest truth is I, I don't focus as much in the beginning of my relationships with clients on, on, the, um, on the outcomes like the sound or the or this or that. What I'm starting with is foundational brand strategy. Mm. What I'm doing is I'm helping my clients turn emotional insights into a competitive advantage. I'm helping them understand what it is about the people they want to reach that they need to know that allows them to create stronger connections. So I look at things from both sides. I, I look at what the brand is all about. Why does the brand exist in the world? I believe that brands should only exist to make people's lives better. So sometimes they do that very well, and sometimes they started out that way and they got a little off track, and now they're more focused on short-term sales cycles and not as focused on the bigger picture of how that brand can make people's lives better. 
I also believe that people are not walking around looking for brands. I think people are walking around looking to solve life's challenges, to have a good time. They're looking to enjoy life more and get more out of it. And if they could find a brand that helps them do that, that's wonderful. And we also know that if a brand gets in the way of a good experience, there's a 47% chance that consumers are going to walk away from that experience and maybe not come back. So I'm helping brands find that intersection of emotional motivation between them and what their audience cares most about. I call okay. it, by the way, I call that intersection uh, limbic sparks. That's what creating limbic sparks is all about people being emotionally motivated by what your brand is all about. Oh, wow. It sounds when I say music makes me high, now I can say that it makes me limbic sparks. It gives me limbic yes, it, sparks. It, it gives you, it creates limbic sparks. Creates limbic sparks. So, yes. so, so interest, interesting now. So imagine now that I am a CMO coming to you and I come from an established brand and I'm interested in the limbic model. So walk me through step by step, like a summarized version. What questions would you ask me as uh, as a company and also my customers to reach this emotional insights? Well, there are three things that I primarily primarily do. One is I help brands focus. I help them focus on what makes them unique and desirable, helping them articulate what it is about their brand that people should care about. The second thing I do is I help them connect. I help them connect better by more deeply understanding the people that they want to reach, um, understanding what makes them tick, understanding what drives their thoughts, understanding what their desires are, their needs, their unmet needs, maybe even their unarticulated needs. And then the third thing I do is I help them evolve. I help them put the strategy that we develop through Focus and Connect into practice and evolve the way they communicate, perhaps the experiences that they put out there or the products and services that they offer. I help them evolve how their brand comes to life in ways that will be more emotionally desirable to the people that they want to reach. So when starting out in the Focus area, I'm very interested in why that brand exists. And I'll want to tap into, um, I want to ask questions that tap into the, the parasympathetic nervous system of the people that I'm talking to on the client side. I'll want to understand, you know, what is it about your brand that is so wonderful? Why do you work here? What is your best day in terms of serving your customers and clients? Um, what are, what are the things that people get from your brand that they couldn't possibly get anywhere else? I'll, I'll really want to walk away from some of the more rational questions, like what are your products and services and what do you do that's great? And what are your three reasons to believe? And like some of those questions are, are, are like ingrained in our business, but they're not very helpful in terms of understanding the emotionality of why a brand should exist. And on the other side, I want to investigate what people care most about. I want to understand the target audience from the perspective of what's going on in their life that they can use some support with or that could help them enjoy things better or that could solve a need that they have. Um, and and I'll, want to understand, I'll want to understand their needs and their challenges and find the intersections between what the brand is all about and what people are looking to um, do successfully in their lives. Wow, very interesting. And I also had an insight when I did my research that that it's more the subconscious that you are interested in, in measuring. And I myself, I became very uh, fascinated about neuromarketing. I was even in, in Singapore for a conference. And there I learned that it says that the brain image testing can be more accurate than just conducting surveys and focus groups. And a couple of years ago, I read a study about a Cheetos commercial that featured a woman taking revenge on another woman in a laundromat, putting the orange snacks in a dryer full of white clothes. <sighs> and afterwards, the female participants in the focus group said that they didn't like the prank, probably because they didn't want to look like mean-spirited to their focus group members, right? But then they did these EEG tests. 
and it showed high brain activity that suggested that the women loved the, you know, the ad. A little bit like I would say, oh yeah, I would have done that too if she did that to me. Um, and this says to me a little bit like how challenging it is for us to to capture the actual emotions in words because asking people directly about a certain things makes them conscious. And how do you? So so I would like to you to tell me the process that you work in the research techniques how do you identify the limbic sparks and, and subconsciously well you've you've absolutely nailed the challenge and why it's important to bring behavioral science research insights and approaches into the work and why it's also important to have a melding of subconscious and conscious based research in the same study and this is one of the things that I absolutely love about uh, my friends at Sentient Decision Science is that they believe in this and they've proven that when you meld the two uh, together, you're actually um, creating more reliable results. So um, it's important that you measure things using the techniques that are going to get most at that measurement. And it's, it's why I switched to the subconscious-based research for the sound, like we talked about earlier. Um, when I'm working with clients, um, there are a variety of ways that I could work with them. I'm, I'm not a research professional. I have access to research partners that have a variety of different types of methodologies. And when the need is there and when the clients can afford it, we will bring that research into the work we're doing. And depending upon the need, there are different types of methodologies that could work well. When I'm working um, with uh, understanding people's responses to concepts or stimulus, uh, sometimes implicit association um, tests are the best for the job. When we're trying to understand um, new ideas and concepts that haven't been thought of for a category, then maybe something like metaphor elicitation using photo sorting and getting people to open up their thoughts about a category and associate it with different images um, and ideas. Um, is going to be more effective than asking them overt questions. You drive a car, you know, what would you like in a car that doesn't exist in a car? I mean, it's a tough question to answer, you know, not, not everyone is going to come up with the answers that will, that will be the most innovative breakthroughs. But if you ask the questions in different ways and get them to open up their mind to possibilities about things or draw corollaries between a car and some other experience and proper research professionals using you know, validated techniques can bring together the findings and create ideas out of that. Th those are the methodologies that I like to work with when I have the opportunity to do so. Oh, wow. What, what a dream world for me. And, and, and <laughs> I, I, I just go, woo, so crazy. And so many things come up in my mind. And, and I, I love the real world. And I love testing hypotheses. Uh, that is my passion. Uh, you think something, you know, why keep asking why, 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 when you can go out and, and figuring out. However, sometimes I can find that strategy is just something written on a paper. And it's not until you get out in the field and be able to take the polls and, and, and measure the metrics and copy eyes that I would say that the strategy really comes alive that it has a true meaning so I would like to understand so when you do this work for a client and then you hand over this emotional based strategy plan to your clients what happens afterwards how, how do they implement it and, and is there like a follow-up yeah it depends on the relationship with the individual client and how far it goes beyond the initial work but the regardless of whether or not I'm involved and course I like to be involved and most of the time I am um, it it evolves how they communicate as a brand it evolves how the brand comes to life in communications in experiences and sometimes in product and service offerings so I had one opportunity um, to work with the AT&T Performing Arts Center which is a nonprofit in, in the city of Dallas Texas in the United States and um, this is a, a large nonprofit and they have um, an incredible campus with multiple um, buildings created by amazing European architects. And they were, uh, they, they always have the most incredible shows and performances from around the world and local Dallas people on their stages. When I encountered them, they were looking to figure out how they can create stronger connections with their audience. They were feeling like some of the people they wanted to reach 
weren't feeling the connection to the brand that they were hoping for. And one of the things that we uncovered was that in their communications, they were using a tagline um, that was called Staging the Amazing. So it was 18th Performing Arts Center Staging the Amazing. And the outcome of that tagline and that positioning was a lot of talking about the amazing things that happen on their stages, how incredible their buildings are, how great the performances are, how wonderful this is, how wonderful that is. And there was a lot to love there, but there was also an opportunity to be more welcoming and inviting, um, to encourage people to find out more about the Performing Arts Center and appeal to what people actually cared about the most. So we, we used the Limbic Spark strategy approach that I described to you, um, and we spoke with a lot of people and developed a lot of ideas and came up with this idea that transformed their tagline and the essence of their strategy from staging the amazing to yours to discover. And now everything that they're talking about is inviting and welcoming discovery of what they have to offer on their campus. It's tapping into the emotional insights and emotional benefits that they offer, which are you can find new opportunities to enjoy times with your family. You can discover new interests and passion areas, maybe even find a new career path or hobby. Uh, you could come on this campus and experience things that'll be lasting moments and memories. You can discover more things like in terms of expanding the way the, the offering goes out there. They're, they're now able to talk about inviting discovery across multiple things and actually encouraging, well, you've done this, why don't you discover something else? Why don't you discover something else? And creating programs that actually encourage people to want to discover more. So this is one example of how it comes to life. It, it affects, even affects for them their fundraising strategy and, um, and inspiring through intrinsic motivation, um, inspiring people to want to support the community and arts in the community and the school districts and, and communities in Dallas that have fewer resources um, that, that now have experiences that they can tap into thanks to the funding of sponsors and donors. Um, so so these, are, these are things that helped us evolve that brand and how it, how it comes to life. Wow, the, the way you, you, you describe it makes me feel like so emotional that I want to fly enough to, <laughs> to Texas and be a part of that uh, that project. And and we all know that we buy with emotions. All the experience and motivation is based on emotions. And then we justify it logically. But I'm very curious about because I'm facing the same problem. And you are. I've met so many people. How come brands are still neglecting this, the power of Limbic Sparks in their brand strategy? Are the leaders scared of emotions? Why is it so challenging uh, to be close to our emotions? Uh, you know something? I, I don't know the exact answer to that question. I mean, partially it's because people get stuck in the way it's always been done and change is hard. But I've come to another theory recently, another conclusion, is that people associate emotional branding. When I say people, I mean brand leaders, CMOs, you know, uh, they, they, they associate emotional branding with, oh, I don't want to get, my brand doesn't want to be more emotional. Um, no, my, my, my CEO doesn't want our brand to be soft and emotional. I mean, people associate emotional branding with their brand changing its personality and being more emotional. That's not what we're talking about. It makes like the emotion is, is something negative. It's like emotion is being weak. But, but more importantly, yes, yes. But more importantly than that, there's a misconception. Tapping into emotional insights to improve a brand's connection with people is not the same as a brand's personality becoming more emotional. A brand needs to understand the emotions of the people they want to connect with. They need to understand what those people need and want and desire in life so that the brand can more effectively communicate with them. It doesn't mean sitting on the couch and crying with them. It means... It Eating means, ice. It means... Yeah, they're not just scooping ice cream together waiting for the world to change. It, it means... 
it means that they are understanding what people need and want, and they're able to effectively adapt how they communicate and what they offer so that people's needs are met. That's what emotional insights um, is all about. Understanding emotional insights can create a competitive advantage if you are addressing people's needs and desires most effectively. It's yeah, all about is- what are you in the world to do to make people's lives better? And how are you doing that in a way that's most relevant? And and this is nothing really like uh, new anyway. I mean, you worked in the advertising agency. I studied advertising and I read about the old times when advertising agencies mostly were run by men. And after a while, it took a while to understand that it was important to hire women since they were responsible for purchasing you know, the household, that the emotional aspect of everything in branding, it's, it's super important. And yeah, no, totally. So now going forward in the world of this pand- pandemic that we have, how should the brands involve emotional brand strategy and customer experience in the new now? And how will you with Olympic Sparks knock down the barriers to once and for all open up about the importance of emotional-based strategy in their work? So it's such a great question, and it's exactly what I've been talking about um, for the last several months, um, the new now. I mean, the new now is, I define the new now um, as, you know, understanding what's going on at this moment and adapting accordingly because the short-term future is not very predictable. And for brands, what that means is people's emotional states of mind, this is where we started the conversation, people's emotional states of mind, people's needs have changed. They've changed quite significantly. And maybe they'll go backwards, maybe they'll keep going forward. I I read a statistic um, recently that was published saying that um, something like 73% of people have tried a new brand for some reason and 33 or 5% of them have decided not to go back and they're going to stick with the new brand that they've tried. So for a lot of brands, there's this illusion of brand loyalty that existed. And in fact, it wasn't really brand loyalty, which is, you know, is a conscious based allegiance and desire to stick with something. It's actually more of a habit, which is a subconscious instinctive reaction to a repeated pattern of behavior. And what brand leaders need to understand is that they shouldn't confuse habits with loyalty. And when the world changes and people's needs change, the cycle of the habit breaks down and customers conflate if you're not adapting and keeping up with their needs. So the advice that I've been writing about and talking about and sharing with my clients over the last several months and which we'll continue to do for the foreseeable future is you need to understand what makes people tick and adapt accordingly. Otherwise, like you, Nike lost you as a client. <laughs> now, um, now I'm going to give you a few quick questions before okay. we end this show. So Excellent. what is pumping in your earphones right now? Um, well, I've made a few eighties references in this, um, in this podcast and I'll, I'll do it one more time and, and I'll say that there's a lot of Van Halen pumping in my earphones recently. Um, we, we recently lost Eddie Van Halen. Um, Van Halen has been one of my favorite bands, um, uh, that takes me back to the time when they first became popular and continued on. And I've been listening to a lot of Van Halen recently. Amazing. So on a scale of one to 10, then how important is music in your life? I'd give it a 10. I mean, who Why? wants to live in a world without music? I mean, and what is you know, a world Van, without music? Then I don't think it exists. A world without music doesn't exist. <laughs> so the next question, three brands that you consider doing a- marketing really great. Uh Oh, two of them have to do with music. Okay, here we go. (laughs) So the first one is Spotify. Um, And what I love about Spotify is the way it personalizes your playlist for you. 
and the way it reminds you at the end of the year of what you've listened to. The simple fact of sharing with you the number of minutes you've listened to music, the, the artists that you listen to the most, the songs that you listen to the most, and you have this year, year over year chronology of what you listen to and reminding you how much you listened. It's an incredible program that not only gives you access to the music that you love at all times, but reinforces your passion year over year. And sometimes I go back, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna listen to the 2016 playlist because I was in a certain mood that year and that music was what I need right now. So that, that's one brand. Um, the second brand is, um, is Bose, uh, these and my, my other uh, wireless Bose headsets that I use. I mean, I, I like Bose um, because of the, the quality uh, slash affordability of, of the brand. It's a, um, it's a low level premium brand for, um, for people like me who aren't gonna you know, spend a tremendous amount of money on, on audio gear, but still gives me very high quality. But more important than that, their customer service is amazing. Um, I was, um, I was uh, in need of replacing, for, for this product, my cord broke, my wired cord broke once, and I went into a Bose store, and they were like, here, they just handed me a replacement cord. They didn't make me purchase anything. And then I have the, um, another pair of Bose, which is wireless, and after about two years of use, it started acting a little bit weird. And I went into a Bose store thinking that they might be able to repair it or something, and they're like, no, we'll exchange it for you. I said, I've been using these for two years. I said, yeah, we'll just give you a we'll just give you a new one. It's fine. I mean, how how incredible is that? Um, that to me uh, is just really yeah. wonderful. And then the last the last brand that I'm really uh, I think does a great job with emotional branding um, is Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Ben and Jerry's ice cream uh, stands for social causes since the beginning of their time. Um, they're always uh, thinking uh, consciously about the world around them and the environment and what's right and, what's right and wrong in the world and, and making a stand against the things that they feel that they should fix um, or have, have a say in what gets fixed. Um, and they're also incredibly um, talented when it comes to having a brand that is relevant, how, it, um, how it, they create brand names for their product names for their different ice cream flavors like Cherry Garcia or um, I'm on the spot now, fish food. Um, you know, the, the, the way they create brand names taps into popular culture um, and is, is often a lot of fun. Wow. Um, and then working every day uh, yourself, helping brands with their emotional motivation, then I wanna ask you, what is it about emotional brand strategy that is so motivating for you? What is your limping spark that makes you wake up every morning? Well, I'm, I'm very happy um, and fortunate that I've decided to uh, start my own company. Um, it's been the most exhilarating thing that I've done in a long time. It's been one of the most challenging things that I've done in a long time, but it's also been incredibly rewarding. And what I'm most passionate about is being challenged and being on the edge of a frontier. And I feel like we're at a moment where emotion based branding, emotion-based strategy, turning emotional insights into a competitive advantage is the edge of that frontier because so few brand leaders, business leaders, and CMOs are doing it that it is a true advantage for those that tap into it. And at this time we're at in the world right now where emotions are so um, erratic, it, it couldn't be a better time for me to be helping the clients that I help um, understand the best ways to put themselves out there um, to create stronger connections with the people that they want to reach. So that's what gets me excited. That's what my limbic sparks are all about. Um, that's what I'm emotionally motivated by. Um, and if I'm creating limbic sparks with anyone out there who's emotionally motivated by what I'm all about, I'd, I'd be thrilled for a chance to have a conversation. Oh, definitely. And what uh, on a scale of one to ten, how much are you looking forward to hearing Christmas music in the stores again? <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to going to stores more often. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. And then some of that Christmas songs. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, you know, 
some Christmas music gets a little repetitive. Some of it's kind of fun and interesting. I hear the Goo Goo Dolls are releasing a holiday album. I'm very excited. Can't wait to hear it. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to the holidays. It's been 2020 has been a, um, a, a, a very, a very active, to say the least, year all around the globe. Um, and what I'm looking forward to is the holiday season, um, having a little time off, spending a little time with my family. My, bro my girls are both in college and they will be home for the holidays. Um, I'm looking forward to being with my family and just letting it all settle and hoping that next year is going to uh, be better than this year. Not that this year was all bad, but there's seriously some room for improvement. I'm, I'm so happy to hear. Kevin, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and so much fun to have you on the show today. It's been an honor to be able to speak about emotions and memories and all of these things that makes us like an authentic person and, and you know, authentic brand. And now the audience are so excited to learn more about you. So where can they go to find more about Limbic Brand Evolution and get in touch with you? Oh, thanks for asking that as well. So my <laughs> website is limbicbrandevolution.com. It's L-I-M-B-I-C brandevolution.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. My name is Kevin Perlmutter, P-E-R-L-M-U-T-T-E-R. -E and if people want to reach out to me, they can message me on LinkedIn. They can um, connect with me or schedule a meeting with me on my website or send me an email at kevin at limbicbrandevolution.com. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Power of Audio, Science and AI. I'm Jasmine Moradi, your host, and thank you very much for listening. Make sure you subscribe on Spotify, iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. If you like this podcast, tell brand leaders around the world, subscribe, leave a review, share the love via your social media or traditional email. Then stay tuned for next time where I will speak to my dear friend, Dr. Bradley Wines, ex-director at Nielsen Consumer Neuroscience, teacher at Berkeley College of Music, and now the chief science officer at WavePass, working with music therapy.